Hello and welcome to another episode of our show. Today's guest is Bruno Cayun. Bruno is the developer behind Mindfulness Integrated CBT, which is a therapy model that is very helpful in helping people get through things, recalibrate how they see the world, and living a, a, a better, more resilient life. You'll definitely get something out of what he has to share today. Be sure to check out his work. You can pick it up on Amazon and uh, any any way you can bring that into your life will be wonderful. If you enjoy the show, please be sure to share it with friends and family, as well as let us know how we're doing at Rob's Probably Wrong at gmail.com. Enjoy the show. Uncut, uncensored, and unfiltered. This is an open mind. And you're listening to I'm Probably Wrong About Everything. All right, we are joined today by Bruno Caillou, who is the director of the MICBT Institute. He is a clinical psychologist in Australia, and he has uh, worked and developed this model of therapy since 2003. Bruno, thank you for, uh, for joining us today. Thank you for the opportunity, Robert. I'm pleased to be here. Of course, of course. Yeah, so... Uh, how are things uh, for you going At in the moment? Australia? Yeah. Yes. Oh, things are very well here. This is uh, quite a peaceful place where I am in Tasmania, very south southern part of uh, Australia, that little island. Right. And um, summer is arriving. Uh, this is southern hemisphere. So, and the COVID issue is not a big big issue here. We have right. this double ring of protection since for an island around another island. So <laughs> we're pretty, we're pretty okay. We're very fortunate here. So Wonderful. we don't worry too much about that locally. We, we do worry globally, but not so locally. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Well, and, and that's something I definitely love to address with you. Um, first of all, tell us a little bit about mindfulness integrated. Yeah. Excuse me. Mindless integrated CBT. Hmm. Well, this is a, a, a tight and quite sophisticated integration of mindfulness meditation practice and principles, not just practice, uh, but it includes uh, principles of Buddhist psychology without being Buddhist or religious itself, such as ethics, compassion training, and so forth. Um, <clears throat> and that in the style of uh, Vipassana, Vipassana meditation as taught uh, in one of the Burmese traditions. So it's not derived from the main methods such as MBSR or mindfulness best stress reduction and, and others. It's, it's uh, an integration of traditional Vipassana meditation um, with cognitive behavior therapy, okay? with main principles of cognitive behavior therapy. So how did you develop this system because as i mentioned you started this around 2003 so what's the story there well actually it started in 1989 actually <laughs> when i started my first 10-day vipassana course as taught by um, lady sayado that's the the first monk in burma that we can trace back to 
with that method. And his pupil was uh, Sayaji Ubakin, who was a lay person, uh, who became the first uh, accountant general of Burma, by the way, uh, later on, and um, who taught his student, Esen Goenka, who was my teacher, my main teacher. I learned from other teachers too, um, a Burmese, uh, other Burmese method, but principally, the other teachers were Thai teachers, so that's interesting, but, but from my own development, more than MICBT per se. So, um, yes, the, in 1989, I did my first 10 day Vipassana course, uh, which requires to, to spend 10 days in silence and meditating 12 hours a day. Um, and the silent, the, the, the silent retreat is very powerful in that. It's, it's quite transformational. So there are silent retreats all over the world people can do. And this one in 2000, and, I think I was 26 in 2009, um, was quite uh, marking for me. It answered a lot of questions I had come from India, where I did a lot of yoga and other types of meditation. And um, um, after that, I went into this more new agey kind of uh, applications of this with uh, rebirthing therapy. And re so I became a rebirther and I did a lot of that very cathartic uh, work with people <laughs> and um, psychodrama and all these things and very Jungian as well uh, kind of approach. And then discovered Vipassana meditation. So I kind of left most things behind, understanding they were stepping stones really but not the answers to my questions. And as I um, engaged with Vipassana meditation, I couldn't stop. It was absolutely fascinating for me to find that kind of between inverted commas, purity, purity of practice. It, it, there was no flow, absolutely no flow. It was the first time I had seen something like this. And um, then it became, really my, my thing, if you like, my daily practice. I practiced one hour, uh, one hour twice a day for 10 years until the kids turned up. So of course <laughs> that reduced the amount, but essentially um, it, it was very transformative for me. And I made a decision in 1994, 95 to actually go to mainstream psychology and make of it my focus. So I wanted to incorporate this in mainstream psychology to assist people, um, especially with pervasive chronic conditions um, to, uh, to, to change even personality traits, which was inconceivable at the time. Okay. We thought in psychology that personality is fixed. It's something that is stable across time and context. So behaviors, um, beliefs, attitudes, um, values that are fixed yeah and and <laughs> i wanted to demonstrate that this is not the case at all and not just that but also develop a, a therapy model that could integrate um, mainstream methods with vipassana meditation and i did well, so it took a while but i did i and and as i've mentioned i'm sort of working through this book uh and i'll talk a you little mean bit the about blue book 
the blue book yes yeah 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 okay right here yeah the uh well-being and personal growth you know it's it's taking me a while it's it's something that and you even mentioned that you you don't just try to breathe through this book you really have to be you have to integrate practice along with the academic side of things so going back to what you're saying um about about this practice is silence sort of the the main healer is that what you oh. found or? silence if silence was the main healer we could isolate ourselves in a cave in the himalayas <clears throat> talking to bats now and then <clears throat> and we'd be fixed with our social anxiety but in fact if you do this <clears throat> you'll be even more socially anxious when you come back to, <laughs> to society so um silence is you're right robert it's is is very healing in many ways uh but it's only a context that we use yeah to meditate so silence being necessary for meditation so that the noise that we accumulate within can become obvious conscious oh. and addressed um yes silence is important but uh, what matters is what you do when you're in silence. Silence can be a torture, say, for someone in an isolation cell in prison. Yeah, silence is the last thing they want. Silence, when we've been traumatized, is the last thing we want. We want TV till 2 a.m. We want uh, loud music in our headphone uh, with a couple of joints and a, and a few beers because silence is torture. Remembering traumatic events is the last thing we want, for example. So silence on its own um, is ambiguous. We need, we need, we need um, a method to address what appears to be silence, which doesn't last more than a few seconds. If you, if you close your eyes and just observe your breath, for example, uh, when silence is allowed in our mind, then very quickly noises from within return. And these are memories, memories that we accumulated uh, in the long term and short term. So we have, if you meditate, uh, starting with mindfulness of breath, for example, then one of the first thing one observes is that we have recently activated thoughts or recent memories emerging in consciousness. So silence doesn't last very long. No. Uh, it takes a few seconds when you're not used to practice. And then of course, we have also frequently activated memories or thoughts. So for example, our job every day. So if you're, if you're a psychologist, then as soon as you meditate, apart from the things that you thought about recently, you'll have to uh, deal with the things that you think about frequently, like, uh, did I call this client? Mm. Um, you know, oh God, what do I need to do? What do I need to do tomorrow? <laughs> you know, if you're the the head nurse in a hospital ward, and then you'll think uh, as you meditate, oh, where, uh, who will I put on the night schedule this week? Right. So we have frequency of activation, and then we have things that are more emotional, um, which the book discusses at length in chapter six. So this is called co-emergence effect. So depending on the sensations you feel in the body, it will produce certain thoughts associated with these sensations. 
if you feel heavy or if you feel tight in the stomach, then you might have, uh, if not a flashback, at least a memory of a time or a situations where you felt this similar sensation in the past. I, I actually really love this part of the book because you, you sort of talk about the characteristics of emotions. So for example, something like anger or frustration, it manifests in me as like a rise in temperature. Mm. And uh, there were other things too. I think it was, what, what were the characteristics of emotions? So when we begin to regulate emotions and after mindfulness of breath and we start body scanning, or uh, as it is called, but really is a surveying of the body part by part, etc., in different ways uh, to regulate emotions. And, and I can explain why we do so. Um, basically, we improve our ability to feel sensations in the body as they are, instead of taking them personally, which gives us more depth in our uh, observation. And we get to a stage where we begin to perceive sensations in the body, which emerge when we feel angry or sad, etc. In terms of four basic characteristics, we call them the elements, or it is traditionally called the four elements. And these are, um, traditionally speaking, again, the element of fire, which manifests in the body in the, uh, uh, in the form of temperature. So in those days, 25 centuries ago, they didn't say uh, right. temperature, they would say fire element. Yeah? Um, or we can feel um, sensations more um, uh, associated with motion in the body. So we uh, traditionally, it's called the air element. Yeah. Or we can feel sensations more associated with mass, as we call it today. In those days, it would be the earth element, so feeling heavy or light. And the fourth characteristics of um, emotion, emotionality in the body is constriction or solidity, which would be the um, uh, um, water element. So we call it fluidity. Mm. So this mass motion temperature and, co and uh, cohesiveness or solidity, fluidity, um, are constituting what composes really what we call an emotion. And when we, when we are not trained in mindfulness meditation, we, we see emotion as a, as a, as a whole, as a, as a unit, if you like. But in fact, it is a compound. It's, it's, it's made of things. Right. Uh, it's made of these four characteristics. So... As we begin the first stage of MICBT, it has four stages. Yes. Uh, in the first stage, we go through these steps of mindfulness meditation. As I said, the first would be mindfulness of breath to regulate attention. We, we've, the first week really is starting with relaxation, just to, to get the mind a bit more settled and to get the person to commit to twice a day practice, which is not easy to do. So you, we use progressive muscle relaxation for 14 minutes twice a day. It's rewarding. It's producing relief immediately, which, which helps us um, commit to self-care twice a day. Mm -hmm. Then we start with mindfulness practice proper, as in meditative practice, with mindfulness of breath to regulate attention. So I'll recap a little bit here so that we know where we're going with this. So mindfulness of breath consists of observing the breath 
touching the inner walls and outer rings of the nostrils, and the area of the mustache for men. Yes, this small triangular spot in the middle of the face, we just pay attention to this. And with every thought that arises, we learn to notice it for what it is, just a thought, not react to it by thinking it. So we say basically thanks, but no thanks. Yeah. So we, we exercise this inhibitory control as we call it in psychology. And we then switch attention back to the task at hand, which is focusing on the breath. Yeah. So that produces cognitive flexibility, which is another executive function. So these prefrontal cortex areas of the brain are, are really developed to some good extent during the first week of mindfulness meditation. And it gives us an ability to have a bit more control over our mind instead of ruminating at night or uh, you know, having some unhelpful thoughts during the day as well. Once we have a bit more agency over what our mind is doing, or perhaps you call it free will, because without choosing your own thoughts, then there is no free will. Yeah? You don't have to be in jail to be imprisoned. You just need to be caught up in thinking. So by freeing our mind from this unwanted thinking, if you like, then we are now able to use that more disciplined mind to regulate emotions through body scanning. So in that second week of the program, we survey the body part by part for the purpose of regulating emotions. So I mean, could, I, could I ask you a couple of questions just to exemplify for listeners to put things in place a little bit more in terms of a rationale. Absolutely. So Robert, do you feel angry sometimes like any human being? Yes. Yeah, of course, yeah. Um, how do you know you're feeling the anger when you're feeling it? I feel it in, in terms of temperature. Oh, okay, so you go straight to the sensations. I mean, yeah. most clients to whom you ask this, they'll say, well, I'll slam the door. Right. Or I shout. But that's so then, when I'm already super elevated. That's right. So that yeah. this is not how you feel it. This is how you react because of it. Yes. Yeah, so that's the behavior. It's not the feeling. But if, you, if we ask, how do you know you're feeling the anger, the actual feeling, then yes, there's no place anywhere else but the body to feel. So right. the only place to look is the body. So, okay, you feel heat. I also feel heat and I feel some agitation if I feel some anger of some sort. Uh, do you feel anxious sometimes, like any, yes. any human being? Okay. Certainly. So how do you know you're feeling the anxiety or the fear when you're feeling it? I feel it when I really start to doubt myself. When, that's when, when, that's when you, you doubt yourself. But yeah. how do you know you're feeling the anxiety? Not when you're feeling it, but how you're feeling it. How am I feeling it? I, how do you know you're feeling it? In terms it? of my body sensations. Okay, so... Yeah. How I feel you know like you? a pressure on my chest, a pressure on my chest. Hmm. And people also add some butterflies in the stomach or, yeah. you know, or increase heart rate. And so these are movements right? Yeah? or constriction in the stomach. These are sensations again. Yeah? Uh, do you feel sad sometimes like any human being? Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> so uh, that's a bit more tricky because it's low arousal. But if you right. can capture that, uh, how do you know you're feeling the sadness when you're feeling it? That's a that's actually a really good question because so often in my life, I think I, instead of feeling sad, I get angry. 
And that is the norm for men, you see, the norm yeah. for women, the social norm, because this is a conditioned response. Yeah, 100%. So, and because it's conditioned for so long that our amygdala is probably a little bit bigger. I haven't seen any difference in gender for the amygdala size, but I suspect men tend to have a slightly bigger amygdala. Right. Um, so we are socially uh, conditioned to react with anger. You don't want to look like a wuss socially yeah. by being uh, soft and vulnerable as a male. You will be kicked out of the cave. And one night out of the cave, there are predators at night. You're dead That's the next day. Yeah. This is for a million years of conditioning. Mm -hmm. So you want to be strong in that cave to, to protect the family and the food and so on. And women should not appear too strong in that cave. Otherwise they compete with graybacks, you know, with big men and they won't win. So by crying, by being vulnerable, everyone comes to the rescue and women will survive much better <laughs> because they don't, they're not confronted by the male's aggressiveness. And so it's a better way of survival. Um, uh, addressing survival mechanisms uh, when you're a woman and, and you feel sad and you show your sadness because people come and help. Yeah. Uh, we don't get help. We get, we get the fight, yes? Or, yeah, yeah. or we flee. Well, and, and again, it being a learned behavior, like, uh, you know, when I was a young kid, yeah. I've always been a very sensitive person, right? Still am. It's not like that just changed. But yeah. I was conditioned that if I was too sensitive, too soft, people would be, they would make fun of you. Right. And then it just further, you know, Absolutely. snowballs it. Right. So then you find a way to mask it. But I'd say that when I do feel sad, um, yeah, I, I, I'm becoming much better at, at, at having that feeling and hmm. expressing sadness. That's wonderful. Yeah. So um, sadness also comes with its own sensation. So that mm -hmm. I'll go back to our discussion. Most of the time, people don't feel light and easy and bubbly yeah. when they feel sad. No, they feel heavy. Yeah. So sadness is associated with a sense of heaviness in the body. Okay? Again, the element of earth, yeah? right. mass, okay? right. so strong mass uh, characteristic. So um, so heavy sometimes that um, we we tend to have low muscle tone, low motivation. And we're, we're not likely to be very um, active when we feel sad. We're, we're lethargic, yeah. That's right. So whether we feel angry, sad, anxious, and you can add sexually aroused, disgusted, ashamed, and any other emotion you may think about, the only way we can feel this emotion is through this body. Right. Right. Even joy. So, right. Even joy. Joy. Absolutely. Yeah. Joy. Happiness. So the uh, that manifests in the form of lightness and tingling sensations. Yeah. So Water, low, right? low yeah. constriction. So that's fluidity, yeah. as we yeah. call it. So given that all emotions are made of sensations and sensations can only be felt in this body. I repeat, given that all emotions are made of sensations. Right and that sensations can only be felt in this body. What do you think would happen if um, we started to learn a method to feel sensations in the body? So with uh, a very small part, say two to three inches diameter spots of attention, 
five to eight centimeters wide, feeling, accepting, mm. and then moving to the adjacent part, feeling, accepting, moving, and feeling, accepting, moving through the entire body from the top of the head to the tip of the toes and back up to the top of the head, continuously morning and evening, day after day, week after week in different manner, different ways, so that progressively all sensations in the body, whether due to sport, physical exertion of any sort, or perhaps uh, the weather or digestion, but also due to emotions. Right. If all sensations in the body become acceptable and there's no being stuck with it, we just feel, accept and move on. If all sensations become acceptable, what will happen when we feel sad, anxious or angry? So, and just to kind of question this, it sounds like in our society, we don't really feel our emotions. Well, that's another story. Yeah. That's definitely another story. <laughs> yeah. So what, what do you think would happen if right. through training, we are able to, our brain and mind are able to accept all sensations, the heaviness that we feel when we're sad, the constriction that we feel when we're anxious, the expansion and heat that we feel when we're angry, etc., etc. Um, if we're able to accept these sensations through practice as a training, what will happen when we have an emotion? We, we'd able to we'd be able to manage it better. That's, that's right. right. So we're able to accept the emotion and move on. We don't get stuck either. So this is called emotion regulation, which mm -hmm. you can do with alcohol, medication, etc. But it's very unhealthy yeah. compared to the most direct and healthiest possible way of doing it which is to accept and let go. So this is the purpose of scanning the body in various ways in, in uh, uh, MICBT, Mindfulness Integrated CBT. Well, and I've noticed in my own practices that the pendulum of thought, right? And you talk about craving and aversion, right? And it's sort of like our mind can, we either try to avoid things or we're always sort of seeking things out. And when we can, bring ourselves back, focusing on our breath, we have, there's a lot more serenity to life because I've lived, you know, I'm 30 years old, 31. And I've lived quite a lot of my life kind of white knuckling, trying to control situations. And what I love about your theory is that it's really, it's about kind of letting go of control of other things and controlling yourself. You control your reaction, basically. Yeah. So control is there in contrast with what many, many people and including authors say about mindfulness. Mindfulness is, of course, about acceptance and non-reactivity when you practice equanimity um, during a, a difficult experience. But for that to happen, you have to control your learned reaction. So mindfulness is as much about control as it is about acceptance, yeah? contrary right. to what one says. So, of course, if you have a background in behavioral science, it's a bit easier to detect this. Yeah? Uh, if we don't, then um, it becomes a little bit airy-fairy sometimes and confusing because people say, well, should I accept or not? Uh, should I accept that I just react, etc., uh, etc.? Et so... Uh, learning to regulate emotions requires control. Not control 
necessarily of of the the pain and the suffering etc but control of the reaction towards it which often is an avoidant behavior yeah? we try to avoid the experience because it's unpleasant so once we once we started um to regulate emotions after having regulated attention through mindfulness or breath, then we engage with different stages of MICBT. So um, stage one consists of self-regulation. So we, we regulate the internal aspects of our life, thoughts and emotions. And then we move on to stage two, which is a, a situational or behavioral regulation where we learn to do exposure techniques or exposure therapy, incorporating mindfulness training with um, situations or in situations that we tend to avoid. This is where you, you, you combine CBT and mindfulness. Yeah? Yes. So we, we do exposure techniques, but with equanimity and a mindful stance, not just the, the old uh, technique of behavior modification. Mm -hmm. And in the third stage, again, we incorporate more advanced mindfulness meditation practices, different scanning methods um, with the interpersonal regulation, which consists of being in interpersonal uh, situations that are difficult, where we tend to react because of people's reactivity, where we tend to lack assertiveness, either by uh, being avoidant or being aggressive and learn not to react to others' reactivity, learn to be more assertive while being kind, and having a kind of a mantra in mind. And this is this. The message must be louder than the messenger. Yeah. Okay. So the messenger must be calm, collected, kind, so that the message is heard. But for that to happen, one has to be quite equanimous or non-reactive, and accepting of one's own experience, which we would have developed in stage one already through mindfulness meditation. So we can then invest that awareness and equanimity into interpersonal uh, tensions that we encounter. So that would be stage three of MICBT. And stage four of MICBT, which follows naturally, is where we um, regulate the transpersonal aspect of our life which means that we learn to live amongst others, not just by ourselves, for ourselves, seeing only ourselves, but seeing just equally, uh, as equally others. So learning not to harm others, not to harm ourselves through ethics, ethical principles, which is an essential aspect of Buddhist psychology and learning to practice loving-kindness meditation. So we develop compassion for oneself and others. We develop uh, an ability to um, value others as much as ourselves. So it's transpersonal. It's no longer just working on me or for me, but it's working also for others through me by um, learning to, yeah, to be kinder and to, to seek harmony and to understand others better once we get to that stage, even before, before that, uh, by having gone through our own suffering in such a transformative way, we understand that others react the way they do because of unawareness. Yes. It's a kind of a, a ignorance, if you want to use that term, this unawareness of how we create suffering by reacting to our own experience is now um, 
gone from ourselves. So we, we know that others have not trained in that way and they react without really knowing why they do. Not because of me, not because they are nasty, uh, not because they have a bad attitude, but just because they are unaware. So once we have that understanding, whether we are professional working with clients or, or not, uh, just being in a family context, for example, or group of friends, etc., we understand their suffering in a very, very different way. And that insight transforms you. Yeah, because it's not, it's, it's true empathy, right? Like, you understand, first of all, everybody in the world has experienced hurt. Mm. That's like a universal yes. thing. And I think that that's what they okay. even, Yeah. So that's a universal suffering. That's a, as the <laughs> Buddha called it, this is the first noble truth. Mm. Yeah. So the first noble truth is life brings suffering and right. you cannot escape that one. If you're born, that's it. The first thing you'll get is a big lump of air in your lungs and that hurts already. Mm -hmm. That's your first breath in this life. And if you don't take it, you'll get a slap on the bottom to make sure you cry so that you can breathe. Yeah. Yes. And you're hanging upside down. I don't call this happiness. So Truly to live is say, to suffer, right? <laughs> well, no, no. Like, well, yeah. Well, and, and the irony you see, Robert, is that when you, when you speak uh, in those terms with people, and they say, well, what are you talking about? I had a great childhood. No, you haven't. Sorry. You haven't. You just don't remember. And right. memory is very selective. Um, did you not cry in childhood? Did you not cry for what you wanted and could not get? Uh, did you not cry for, you know, even before you could remember anything before age two? Did you not cry for mom's attention that she yeah. could not give you? And so on and so forth. So... Uh, you could say, well, that's that's a long time, that's a long time ago. I mean, I, I'm a happy person. Yeah. Now and then. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're just not aware that what you experience in everyday life contains a lot of suffering because you haven't gone to that level of happiness yet to see the contact, the contrast. So until you see really what genuine happiness is, those moments, even though that's not permanent either. But this intermittent moment of being free from suffering then teaches you what suffering is that you have not seen yet. So it's funny because we were very good at survival. Well, we were incredibly we, resilient. Creatures. In the Middle Ages, yeah. what, would, what would happiness mean in the Middle Ages Eating or the chicken? Dark Ages? Yeah. Or the Dark Ages. What yeah. would it mean to be happy compared to now? For exactly. Example? Yeah. yeah. I mean, the wealthiest person in the middle ages is like a you know is an impoverished person today and and uh, disease yeah what about disease in the dark ages for example so what would happiness mean in this context okay just in that context so similarly if we transpose that uh if we say well everything's contextual you know everything depends on context yeah. very true if we transpose this nowadays um, in, in today's life, we would say that uh, we're pretty happy. You know, we, when we, in therapy, give a, a, a scale of happiness or with my clients, for example, I give them a very short one so they're not too burdened by questionnaires. It's a five-question questionnaire called the Satisfaction with Life Scale. Um, and it's an interesting set of questions included because it, it asks people 
And that's at pre-treatment, mid-treatment, and post-treatment. At, at pre-treatment, they score pretty high on this. Most of them, not all, but most of them. And questions are um, asking things such as, um, I have the most important things in life. Okay, so you have to rate your agreement with that from, from one to five. Um, another question would be, if I were to live my life again, I would change almost nothing. Okay, you have to answer that from, from one, not at all, to five, absolutely, yes, true, true to me, etc. Well, you see, um, I see clients with, who are very damaged, really, really, really unwell, and clients who are very high functioning and some are in government, some are with, um, you know, uh, at the head of uh, very large businesses. And so what they want is to improve, not to, not to heal, really, in this case. Uh, they heard about this method from friends, etc., or family, and they say, well, I would do with a bit of that, you know, but they don't have significant mental health disorders, and others do. Okay, so when some of those high-functioning clients come here and they fill in that questionnaire, I always warn them, please don't compare yourself with others. Mm. Because often what they do on that questionnaire, I remind you, this is satisfaction with life scale. Right. Often what they do is compare themselves with others and, and say, so they look at the context yeah, and say, oh, look, Bruno, you know, I'm a first world problem. Right. You know, it's not, you know, I, I don't even know whether I should be here, you know, compared yeah. to the other clients you must have, um, uh, you know. I must I be such a my, burden. Yes, yes. You know, yeah. How guilty I am to come yeah. and do therapy, you know, because uh, of my tension with my wife or daughter or son or with my staff at work. Yeah. You know, if, you know, people in Afghanistan, they, they're being stoned to death. You know, what yeah. am I complaining about? I don't have trauma. I don't have issues. And they rate very high on this scale, you know. Right. And sometimes before therapy, they score in the extremely satisfied range. So one wonders, why, why are you here? Okay. And then mid-program, we do a review, and they score again. And suddenly, they don't score so well. Mm. They realize that actually they're not as happy as they thought. Why? Because they become happier. And by oh. becoming happier, they can start to see the contrast when yeah. they are happier and right. when they're actually not happy because they're more mindful of their unhappiness. Okay, no matter how high in government you are or how big your, your business is giving you a return, you are not happy and you're mm. seeing it now. So on that scale, you rate, you rate lower. Right. And yet this is a sign of progress. And this at is, the this, end of therapy... Yeah. Um, they might score much better, or they might score pretty average on that one still. Is that and because you, they're is that because they're becoming aware of their appetite? Yes, that that's it. That's it. Right. So they become. And if you ask them, which we call post and pre-assessment, if you ask them to re-rate the way they were before therapy, which is a fantastic way of measuring people's progress because it's an implicit yes. measurement, so they can't fake in this case, yeah, to please the therapist. So if you say well, um, please re-rate on each of those scales how you were before you started. 
And then you see the difference. Now you see that they are seeing the unhappiness before therapy started. Because they score significantly lower than what they did before therapy. Right. So that retrospective score, say if before therapy they say, oh, on an unhappiness scale, unhappiness scale, I score, um, say, uh, five out of 10. So I was neither unhappy, not too happy. Yeah. 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 Now they score um, nine out of 10 on unhappiness. Yeah. You, you know, what's interesting because I, I use scales with clients as well, but oftentimes when a kid says five, it's almost like, oh my gosh, is everything all right? But really five is going to what you say is it's, uh, equ- I always get the word wrong equanimity it's equanimous right because you could go either way but it's almost like we see the half the glass is always it has to be full it has to be full when it's okay to be again in the center of that pendulum we're not getting too crazy with our joy you know that we're going about things in in wild ways and we're not getting overpowered by our anger or something like that so, yeah, you talk about neutrality in some ways, yeah? yeah. So, so um, yes, in terms of happiness, um, I mean, life, we shouldn't complain too much for most people in uh, developed countries, you know, we, we're quite lucky to, to have what we have today. As I said earlier, compared to uh, what right. one could have, even a, a king or a queen in the, in the dark ages. But at the same time, uh, the way we base our happiness is 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 interesting. When, once we become more mindful of this, then we become more aware of what is impermanent in life. And basing our, our happiness, relying on impermanent satisfaction is a source of unhappiness in itself. Okay? Uh, because we will cling to what makes us happy at some point. Right. And of course, because it changes what's going to happen very soon. We feel dissatisfied and happy again. So the first reason for unhappiness is the impermanence of all phenomena, including what makes us happy. So um, MICBT makes a strong emphasis on this, and it, and it helps a lot. So you see the notion of impermanence is, is, is not something, it's very Buddhist psychology, you know, it's not something we've integrated very well in, uh, if at all, in fact, in Western therapies. And yet, if you think about it a bit deeper, you'll find that the fact that things are impermanent becomes a trigger for um, mental health condition, the, the onset of it. For example, um, I had my father and I had my mother, and now my, now my father is gone. And I'm so depressed. I'm only five. I don't know I'm depressed, but I, I don't like to go to school anymore. And uh, I only think about my father and my mother doesn't want me to talk about him. And uh, every time I go and see my father, because he has me every weekend, then um, I have to leave him. All this is about impermanence. 
So impermanence so, is, is death. Well, <laughs> death is one form of impermanence. Right. Eh? Uh, certainly it is death in itself. If you want to use a term death, it's the ending of something, isn't right. it? Which you can call death if you like, but it's an ending. Death is just a, a word, yeah? Uh, so death, we talk about death usually in terms of the end of life or the end of a, a, a chapter or something along these lines. But essentially, we're talking about the ending of some sort. So when, when we end our life, this is, this, we call it death. Uh, when we end a relationship, we don't call it death, but it's still a death of some sort. Yeah? So it's an impermanence right. uh, that we are faced with, and we mourn because of that. Similarly, um, uh, now I have my first baby, and um, I am, uh, I used to be uh, appreciated by all these men uh, or boyfriends at school. Right, right. And uh, now I have my first baby. Uh, my body has changed. Uh, no one looks at me. Uh, and I seem to be boring with my friends because all I talk about is babies, etc., etc. This is the end of right. youth. This is the start of motherhood. Yeah. Okay, so I can go on like this, but impermanence. All, all things shall, all things pass. The good, mm, the bad, right. the that's indifferent. Right. And we and we don't want the pleasant things to pass. No, of course not. And when things are unpleasant, we want them to pass, and they don't pass when we want. Yeah. <laughs> so the first source of suffering, mm. the first source of all suffering, really, is that we we don't get what we want. And instead, we get what we don't want when we don't get what we want. It doesn't right. take long. Yeah? Just the fact of not getting what we want means we get what we don't want instead. And even when, um, even when uh, things don't change, so because things change, when, things, uh, when we get what we want, they change. And we, even, even when things don't change immediately, we do. <laughs> so right. there is no choice. Suffering is there. This is what creates suffering. It's not whether we have enough money or not. It's not whether we have the right or wrong car, the right or wrong partner, whether we've been traumatized in the past or not. It's because of this. We don't get what we want. Instead, we get what we don't want. Um, and uh, when we get what we want, things change. And when we see that things don't change we do i think uh, there's something there too that in i don't know if this is you know western culture but i'll just say it is but there's it's almost like there's a dichotomy it's either good or it's bad but yeah. really everything is just it's great you know and when, when bad things happen to us we think like how could this happen to me and it's just like well we're attached we're attached to it We've attached meaning to this when it's just a thing that it's that's happened. Like, for example, you know, my dad died when I was 14 and that was very hard for me and so forth. But that was just a thing. You know what I mean? Like that that could have happened anywhere in the world to anybody. Right. But there is an attachment to it, and we attach it with labels like that's good, that's bad, not you know, this sort of gray scale. Mm -hmm. Yes, I see what you mean. So we, we, we get attached to it, but what is the reason of attachment is because we identify 
with things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So when we identify, so you, for example, you didn't, you didn't cry when my father died. Why not? Because it's not your father, it's my father. So when you say my, you also say I, you know, whatever we call I is made of my. Yeah. So anything that we call my, we get attached to, we are, we identify with. Right. As it's soon as possession. we identify, yeah. So as soon as we identify with phenomena, whether it is a parent, a person, or a thought, or an emotion, or a possession, or a point of view, or a position in society, a job, etc. Um, whatever we identify with, to the extent that we are attached to it, to that extent, we grieve. To that extent, we're going to have to detach ourselves from. And that, that uh, process of detachment is creating suffering, because we did not think that even what we're very attached to will change one day. There will be a change. There will be a loss. So the sense of loss is due to the need for detachment because even your house is not your house. Right. Your, your land is not your land. Uh, even if you're a local Aborigine here or a local person in Canada and you say, well, you are on my land. No, we're not. Mm. I have to be careful about uh, conventions here but no one's it is no one's land yeah yeah <laughs> this land was born billions of years ago before human beings were there yeah no one the stone that you build your house on was there before humans existed yeah. so there is no i or my or me but we do that we attach ourselves and we as soon as we um call something my with with a, a clear uh, sense that, uh, that we are attached to it because it is truly mine, there will be suffering. This is what creates suffering too. So this identification. Yeah, yeah I, I, I love what you're saying because I see a lot in the world that there's a lot of sensitivity. And in your book, you talk about it's it, uh, bipolar exposure, right? Yes. Not to be confused with bipolarity, mental bipolarity, but you look at the good and you look at the bad of the situation, but the biggest thing is that you're facing it. You're not just saying like, hey, this is something that I'm really sensitive to. Please be careful and don't say, you know, uh, yellow Eldorado or something like that, right? Because that, that gets me really upset, <laughs> you know? And then we have to make all these weird rules that we can't say yellow Eldorado around you or, have, uh, some I'm sorry, but in Australia, we don't have that, that expression. What does it mean? Hello, I just Eldorado. made it up. It's just like, a, oh, it's oh, a okay. word, right? Like, yeah, okay. My point is, is that in our society, we're, I want to, I want to help develop resilient people. And when we're trying to avoid harming somebody else's feelings, it creates a very strange society of like, like you said, we're, we're identifying too much with our pain. And that's something that, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, as they say, right? So how can we make people identify less with, you know, this is what triggers me. Yes, this that's is, right. right. That is the question, in fact. Uh, the essence of um, these teachings in Buddhist psychology, which are embedded within MICBT, is... Um, in fact, a whole process of 
developing a sense of egolessness, non-identifying with a sense of self. So how do we do that with mindfulness meditation? Well, first of all, as we proceed with the first step of mindfulness meditation, which is mindfulness of breath, and we develop these three executive functions, which I remind you consist of sustaining attention at the entrance of the nostrils and noticing thoughts for what they are as they intrude, holding in mind, so with working memory, holding in mind the task, yeah? not to identify with the thought. So that's first, this identification yes. skill. This, this with identification. Thoughts. That's right. So when the thought yeah. arises, <laughs> when the thought arises, we do not identify. We, 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 we may say just at the start of the practice to help a little bit, and then we don't have to at all. Thinking, thinking is, is taking place. It's just thinking. It's not my thought or me. We no longer abide by the false belief that I think, therefore I am. Okay? Leave that to the French. Uh, this Cartesian dualism does right. not work. It right. does not work. Um, so um, thinking is taking place and we don't identify with the thought. And how do we do this? Um, is by letting it go as quick as possible. So inhibiting the response, second executive function, and switching attention, shifting back to the breath, again, uh, executive function. Cognitive flexibility is taking place so that in daily life, we can do that as well. And then we scan the body. And again, we feel sensations, and some of which are associated with emotions. And we again, don't identify with sensations which is a second part of what mm. I normally could, I, I could call I, me. So my thoughts, my emotions through sensations, no identification with them. It's just a sensation with a predominance of mass, motion, temperature, or solidity. No identification with it. This is why we use these four elements, so that we have a, a more objective view yes, of yeah. what we are feeling. We yeah. are feeling... We're almost stepping outside ourselves. That's right. We're not feeling yeah. me. We're feeling emotions, but that's not me. These are four elements. And we let them pass. Oh. We understand these are impermanent as well. So yeah. now we use the law of impermanence as a means of decreasing suffering rather than being victim of it. Yes. And, then, and then we do that through different methods of scanning uh, from slow, part by part, to very fast uh, sweeping techniques with the ability then to feel the entire body outside and inside the body in a single breath. Now, you haven't got to that stage, I understand, yet uh, in the book, but you will get to that point where you sweep in depth in a single breath and feel the entire body. Of course, at that point, we have to warn people who practice not to cling, not to get attached to the blissful experience that one may encounter. Because again, bliss, if we make it my or me, we get so attached to We're it chasing. the next day and the next day bliss is gone and we feel miserable again. Yeah. Again, a nice demonstration of how suffering takes place. Well, and, and what I love about your book is that, first of all, there's, there's many reasons why I love it. I mean, it's very well written. It's academically supported. There's the audio book that goes with it. And there's tons of activities. I mean, it's a truly comprehensive thing. It definitely is a commitment. And as a young parent, uh, I have a 14 month old daughter. I, you might have heard her just walk into the room there. And yes. Announce her arrival. Yeah. yeah. Um, but 
it's like, ah, oh, man, how do I find time? And there's an expression that I love. And it's freedom. It's, it goes freedom through discipline. So in your practice, you, I didn't come up with that, by the way. That's uh, an author. But you have to find time. You have to make time, right, for this, for a half an hour a day. Where, where, where is a good time for somebody to add these two half an hour slots for mindfulness integrated uh, yeah. CBT? Yeah. Um, ideally, morning and evening, but people mm -hmm. can practice whenever they can. It is important to keep in mind with a program like this that we capitalize on neuroplasticity. So mindfulness practice, well delivered, well learned, well practiced, produces changes in the brain, which is why it is transdiagnostic, which is why we can use it across a wide range of disorders. And there's strong evidence of that with MICBT. Um, perhaps uh, less, less with some other methods that use mindfulness practice. Uh, but MICBT it is, is constructed specifically to be transdiagnostic. Um, and partly, as I said only, partly because it produces neuroplasticity and partly because of where it produces neuroplasticity. Um, so the, the condition for that to work well is threefold. One is frequency of practice mm -hmm. twice a day, ideally. Yeah? Second is duration of practice, half an hour. You may practice 25 minutes, you may practice 35, but we have no evidence uh, that uh, move, departing too much from half an hour minimum a day, twice a day, is going to give the same transdiagnostic effects. We have no evidence. So we have only evidence for what we, the model right. is, is uh, offering. And the third condition for, for success is accuracy of practice. Because there are many so-called mindfulness-based practices, mindfulness interventions, and you end up snoring, laying down on the floor. Yeah, so it's great <laughs> for relaxing, great yes. for relaxing, but you're not really producing the change that you're looking for. So if we want to produce the change, we have to be accurate. If you go to a brain surgeon and you say, I have a headache, can you please open my skull and fix my brain? And the surgeon said, wait, wait, well, we don't do that like this. You need to do a few scans. We need to know exactly what, what is the problem. And if there is uh, some, maybe in the potential tumor in your brain, we need to know exactly where it is to, to uh, take it out. So this is, uh, you know, very precise surgery. We don't do damage to other things or we don't do things that are useless. Mm. And this is even more precise. You see, we've, right. we've it's very specific. Yeah, connecting yeah. microscopic neurons requires much more precision than using a scalpel. Yeah, yes. a scalpel cannot do that. Only the yeah. mind can do it. So the mind must be trained to operate on the brain in a very, very precise way. This is why this this book was written to offer precision and yeah. to offer uh, guidance, uh, not only with precision in terms of uh, the practice, but also the amount and duration of practice. So if we, if we think of when to practice uh, and when is best to practice, well, whenever you have time or you can make time. And if you're not sure, then I would tell the listener, open your phone, turn your phone on, 
if you have an iPhone or whatever phone, smartphone at least, and look at the summary of the time you've spent on your phone every day per week. Okay? How many minutes do you spend on your phone per week? You can, anybody can do that right now. Yeah. You know, you can have a summary, I don't know how it's called, uh, but it's basically a summary of the time spent on your phone. And most people spend over an hour a day on their phone. Easy. Smartphone. Most people. Easy. And here, here's your hour of practice, morning and evening, half an hour. There you go. You don't need to have time. You just need to make time and sacrifice time wasted on so meaningless activities to develop your own happiness. This wow. is not too difficult to do, and this is logical to do. I love your challenge. Yeah, I mean, just on cell phones, they're like, there's such a weird time, like in between things while we're waiting, we're on our phones, while we're, you know, we get a, a second between emails, we're on our phones. Well, for me, I, I even see that I'm doing that and I'm becoming more intentional in my usage of technology. And I think that what you're proposing here is when you look at it that way, it's not unrealistic. That's correct. That is correct. Huh. And even, you know, um, this is, we're talking about therapeutic efficacy across a wide range of disorders. Right. But even if we talk about well-being only, um, and although well-being is just as important, well-being only for a well-functioning person, and they practice less, for example, yeah, they'll still get some benefit for sure. Well, let that happen at least. Yeah. Whatever we can practice, let's practice it. What about like cancer and things like that? Does this help fight against cancer? Of course it does. Of yeah. course it does. By reestablishing a better functioning immune system, then you can only help uh, progress with the recovery from cancer or perhaps even delay its occurrence. Yeah, it just, uh, it's not rocket science. You just, by producing, and there's strong evidence that mindfulness meditation increases the immune response. Uh, just Google it. Um, mindfulness and immune, immune system. There's several studies that are well cited already in that, in that case. Um, increased antibodies have been found in meditators compared to control counterparts, uh, clearly in several uh, studies. And they're not even new studies, it's well established. So cancer, re uh, cancer recovery, cancer treatment heavily relies on um, um, a, a good immune system. So another thing that uh, is about cancer is that when we, look at the occurrence of cancer in general, you, you, ha you, you look at uh, more uh, reviews so that, that we talk about, when you talk about meta-analytic reviews. Well, in the meta-analytic meta studies, uh, study that I saw, which means a study of studies, over 30% of people with cancer had a history of chronic stress. Only 8%, only 8% of those had a history of poor um, lifestyle. Bad food, cigarette smoking, etc. Yeah. Okay? 
poor lifestyle, 8%. Chronic stress, 30%. Holy so that, smokes. So, so that gives Sorry, you Sorry, that idea. had to sink in for me, Bruno. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah, I realize you just realized what I said. <laughs> so this is quite massive. So if you decrease stress, I'm not saying... You're going to live longer. Well, that also is evidenced already in the 1970s, yeah? yeah? Um, there's evidence that even, even with a simple mindfulness practice in everyday actions, I'm not even talking about meditation, prolonged life by two and a half years in older adults in the late 1970s. And this is a study done uh, that might even have been her PhD by Ellen Langer. Ellen Langer, she's in Harvard University. She's still there, I believe. Um, uh, pro produced a book then in 1980 or 81 called Mindfulness. And she cites all those studies related to longevity. So this is, you know, there's a lot of evidence across wide, um, wide range of contexts and disciplines. It's not just psychology, that mindfulness practice will improve your life, not just your happiness, but quality of life and duration of life. So Bruno, we talked a little bit about history and the Middle Ages. And uh, I mean, obviously we didn't live back then, but it seems now more than ever, we live in a time where we're so easily distracted that the susceptibility to be mindless, you know, the susceptibility of mindlessness is so much higher than being mindful. We literally have to create time for us twice a day, half an hour. That's right. So you need to reduce activities that produce right. mindlessness, like addiction to uh, cell phone, for example, yeah. So, um, yeah, and, and other screens as well. So 150 years ago, do you think that people were more mindful then? Not necessarily. They just mm. were less distracted. Mindfulness is not the same as attentiveness. I believe they were significantly more attentive, uh, less distractible, less distracted. And they, because partly they, they, they could not rely on technology to do their job, so they had to pay attention. Um, and if someone was learning statistics even 50 years ago, they had to learn the formulas and do it all by hand. Right. Now you use software right. to learn anything. Right. So we don't develop the skills in, in our mind to develop, right. to, to remember even how to do some statistics by hand. This is just a small example. Yeah. But basically, they weren't more mindful than they are today. I don't believe so. They, they were just more attentive. Mindfulness is more than attentiveness. Attentiveness is just that. paying attention. Whereas you can pay attention in a very negative way, Robert. So you can, you can be very attentive with a will to, to harm someone mm. or to hate someone or to crave someone indeed. And that is nothing to do with mindfulness. That's the opposite. That's reactivity right. leading to suffering. Um, so, and yet that's being attentive. I often evoke that uh, example, uh, um, a cat in front of a, a mouth hole, a mouse hole, sorry. Um, and uh, well, is the cat super attentive, ready to jump, a mindful cat? Right. No, no he's not. It's an attentive yeah, yeah, cat. Yeah. It's an attentive cat. Mindfulness requires an ability not to take the object of attention personally not to identify with the object of attention. Right. Yes. So, and 
and also so that means not to judge it in a in a personal way with personal values and also not react to it so mindfulness capitalizes on, on two very important things one is non-identification and equanimity non-reactivity and acceptance of the experience love that word so equanimity is the ability to remain unperturbed by an event that takes place within the framework of our mind or body or both and not reacting not being unperturbed means even though something is unpleasant we don't need to react and and we can accept it that's equanimity if you take that away from mindfulness from sorry from attention then it is attention it's not mindfulness in traditional buddhist psychology it is said in in those term uh, you know traditional words that equanimity pur purifies our thoughts mm. without it then you're just attentive you're not mindful yeah i because i love how and i'm just looking at the time here too but i love how you say that you're able to say things you don't just let things happen you're able to share the message but you're not raising your voice you know you're able to be calm in providing and still being a change agent you know still making the yeah. world possibly a better place yeah and you can still have emotions you're not a robot don't get me wrong yeah but you see emotions for what they are you don't yes. take them too personally and that means you can let them go more easily yeah and uh, you don't assume that the cause of your emotions is external so much well yeah. even if you lose a dear person a mother a father yeah. or best friend you understand i feel sad and and low because of course i love my parent for example but i was also very attached to them right, right. and this is why i'm feeling the grief due to my attachment the emotions aren't the wind in your sails they're not the one guiding you right well, well said. So last last question here. What about mindfulness in children? What about uh, MICBT in, in yeah. children? So the, this, this can be taught to children and they learn very quick. The difference with children and adults usually, and that depends on the age of the child, of course, as well, but is that they don't learn very deeply. So they learn more superficially depending mm. on their age. So there are age, uh, different ages for um uh, you know, acquisition of knowledge. Uh, children, uh, as you know, will develop cognitive levels or, or stages of development. So um, at a younger, a very young age, a child doesn't even understand what love means. Uh, they think, oh, mom doesn't love me because she didn't kiss me tonight. Right. Yeah. Only dad loves me because he gave me a kiss before going to bed. Yeah. Right. So they don't, they don't understand. They're very... Uh, at a certain age, they're very um, so the uh, concrete, for example, say uh, about young to middle childhood. So later on, they develop a sense of abstraction. Love being very abstract, mindfulness is very, very abstract, extremely abstract. So we teach mindfulness in children in a very country, <laughs> you know, concrete way rather than an abstract, abstract way such as we don't talk about happiness as much, we don't talk about egolessness, we don't talk about equanimity. These are very abstract terms for kids. Uh, but you can say when, um, 
when uh, a thought that makes you scared uh, comes into your mind, you can come to your breath and then you let it pass. Or you can use different terminology, much more effective than what I just said, uh, using analogies such as animals and things like this. And mm -hmm. uh, you, can, you can use imagination, you know, a thought is like a cloud, you know, and it comes and then when you let it go then, or you don't, you don't uh, think it for too long, then the sun comes back. Or um, I don't particularly work with young children, so I don't probably have the, the right language for it. But certainly young children are, are being taught in schools um, in Tasmania here, as well as in Canada. Yes. And um, where are you again in Canada? Uh, Vancouver. Vancouver. So I don't know uh, people in Vancouver. I know in Ottawa, uh, a colleague and friend of mine uh, who teaches uh, little children uh, how to meditate at school. That's that's an example. And she is, you know, uh, very well trained and is a teacher of MICBT. Um, and she teaches uh, the, the the things that kids can learn. She doesn't teach MICBT altogether, obviously, for children. Mm -hmm. But you can, you can with children, starting with just mindfulness of breath. And leaving it at this, because scanning the body is probably a bit too complex for them. Well, it, it, there's certainly ways that you can do it. I mean, anytime a kid is overwhelmed, I get them to just, okay, you have to mm. concentrate on your breath. And then when they're That's focusing right. on their breath, then suddenly they're able to tell me what the problem is, right? But mm. if I'm like, what's wrong? Then they're like, mm. oh, 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 right? <laughs> so, you know. But uh, Bruno, thank you so much for your time. What's uh, what's next for you now? Because you you said you don't know anybody in Vancouver, so I'm seeing. Oh uh, no, no, I know people in Vancouver. Oh, don't get me wrong. I don't know yeah. anyone who teaches uh, children, like in mindful schools, for example. But if people are interested in that, then um, they can Google mindful schools. Mm -hmm. Uh, mindful school, I can't remember, and look at uh, schools in which mindfulness is being taught and they can make connections with those who teach it, etc., and get more information. Now, in Vancouver, um, there are very important people to me, actually. <laughs> uh, yes, in Vancouver, um, there is a, a person who teaches uh, MICBT to professionals, her name is uh, Andrea Grabovac. She's a consultant psychiatrist and a lecturer um, in university. And um, she's, she's a very important um, person there, along with um, uh, another person in uh, Ottawa, who's very important for MICBT. Um, and her name is Alia um, Hoffman. So both of them are directors of the MICBT Institute, uh, North American chapter in Canada, and they teach MICBT to professionals in Canada. So if you uh, do a search on the Northern chapter, um, North American chapter, sorry, of MICBT, uh, MICBT Institute in Canada, then you find uh, a connection to their um, uh, area there and their, um, um, courses that they can teach and training for those who are interested in that, professionals interested in that. Um, also, um, they do some uh, consultation, of course, for patients and um, that you can take it from there if anyone's interested in training in Canada. Wonderful. 
Well, your your model of therapy has certainly helped me, Bruno, in in my own practice and uh, in my relationships. You know, so thank you very Wonderful. much for your time Stay and uh, for what you've provided and help people. Thank you, Thank you. Thank you very much. Bye bye. Once again, that was Bruno Cayun, developer of Mindfulness Integrated CBT. I love what he said about equanimity and being able to work through our things and not be controlled by our emotions and the events in our lives. I know throughout my life, I have been a bit of a slave to my emotions. There's been times in my life when I react to things. And even in my reaction, I'm like, you know, why am I doing this? Right. And none of that, of course, is, is helped by the, the poor decision making processes that we make in our lives. Things that take us away from being mindful, things that deliberately suck and drain our attention. So like Bruno was saying, if you look at how much time we spend on our phones and our devices, we could easily find two slots, half an hour, that we can bring in some mindfulness and live better, healthier, fuller lives. Thank you again for listening. I'm Robert Grant, and I'm probably wrong about everything.